Hey, hi, my name is Rebecca Woods. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, I'm jointly appointed in the Department of History and in the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology. Um, I'm here, I'm a historian of science, environment, and animals, and I'm here today with Catherine Evans. I'll let Catherine introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the Center for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at the University of Toronto. Um, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much to Marcus Duber for putting this together for the Center for Ethics, um, for all of its, its fascinating interdisciplinary work. Um, and yes, I am at the Center for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies, but I'm trained as an historian and my work right now is about responsibility and psychiatry in 19th century murder trials throughout the British Empire. Great, and so Catherine, why don't we start by um... You telling us a little bit about how you how the um, how you see the that how you see studying the rise of forensic medical experts or scientific expert witnesses more broadly um, in the 19th century as um, contributing to our understanding of today's um, pandemic and the crisis we're currently in. So at first blush, these two things don't seem terribly related. And when Marcus first approached me, my first impulse was to pass him off on to some of the fabulous historians who actually work on epidemic disease, contagious disease, and the 20th century. But then the longer I thought about it, um, the more I realized that I might have something to contribute. So I work, um, as I mentioned earlier, on the rise of the forensic expert and specifically on the rise of the alienist or psychiatrist in 19th century murder cases wherein they were called increasingly across the, the century to appear in murder trials to testify as to the sanity and the capacity of the defendant um, mentally and otherwise to, to be punished um, for his or her actions. And the reason that I think this is interesting is because we're in a similar moment um, where institutions that are not primarily scientific, in this case, um, in the case of coronavirus, public institutions and government institutions in my world, um, the world of law, um, you have folks who are not scientists who are seeking scientific expertise to try to thread their way through one of the most or some of the most complicated and uncertain uh, areas of human experience. So in my world, that's the mind that's trying to determine whether or not someone was sane, legally speaking, at the time they committed a criminal act. In our current moment, uh, we see the resort to science and scientific expertise constantly in our efforts to figure out what is happening in the pandemic and how we can approach it. So in those ways, you have authorities who are reaching outside of themselves and bringing in scientific expertise to try to solve apparently unsolvable and critically important problems. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so what are some of the ways that um, what are some of the ways that forensic experts in the 19th century like built up their expertise and do you see are there like specific parallels that you see um, that you're you're watching unfold today or are there salient differences that might help us kind of shed light on precisely how these different scientific experts are developing their coronavirus expertise so there are some differences. So one of the big things that historians of science and medicine and law are really interested in when they write about the 19th century is what we call professionalization. It's an ugly word. And by that, we mean the ways that um, specific groups of people are able to hive off areas of knowledge and expertise and claim that they know these areas better than anyone else. Um, and a lot of the time, this comes along with um, professional advantages. So the ability to charge fees, the ability to, to hold seats in universities, 
to act as um, political and public intellectuals and pundits. Um, so professionalization is about the effort to, to delimit a field and then to claim expertise and to, to claim territory essentially over that body of knowledge. So I don't really see the same process happening now um, because the kinds of professionals that we're turning to are part of old professional networks, or at least ones that are sort of well-established. So public health and epidemiology um, and clinical medicine um, in another world and potentially another um, episode of this podcast, we could talk about economics uh, mm -hmm. as a science and the role that economic expertise might play in the way that we think about these questions. So in that sense, they're different. Some of the ways in which they're similar, though, are really interesting. And, and there are two that I think would be worth talking about. One is this actual translation that's necessary. So in both contexts, you have people coming from very different fields of knowledge, the sciences, mm -hmm. medicine generally, being asked to translate their findings for the public and also for professionals with different backgrounds. So in murder trials, you have alienists trying to explain their, their methods, their findings to both a jury of laypersons and also to judges and lawyers who come with very different professional orientations to the questions that are before them. Now you have this, a similar set of uh, phenomena happening with respect to public health and science. They're trying to speak to the public. We see all of these press conferences. So there is, is absolutely a public facing role, um, but there's also these in-camera meetings, the command tables that we hear about all the time where scientists are trying to explain their thinking, their methods, and their findings to other experts um, from other areas, including political experts, but also of much wider range. So that's one way in which uh, they're similar, so translation. The second is celebrity. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big things that psychiatrists in the 19th century, I'll call them psychiatrists, they didn't really call themselves that, but they were looking for um, professional prestige, they were looking for money, they were looking for high posts in government systems. They wanted to be the head of these um, really well-funded public institutions, um, asylums in the 19th century in my context. Uh, and so it, it looked good, uh, you know, if they could be called upon as, as the person, the guy, inevitably in my case, mm -hmm. um, to come and speak about the inner workings of the mind to diagnose people with hidden kinds of insanity that only they as experts could discern. Um, and here, I was really intrigued by, by the rising profile of chief ministers of health across Canada in particular. And I had never heard of a lot of these professionals who've been in, this is a really important uh, position in, you know, so we have them across the provinces. We also have a chief public health officer operating at the federal level. And I didn't know anybody's name. Uh, and now we all know their names. So there are murals um, all over, all over uh, BC to, um, celebrate Dr. Bonnie Henry, right? We, we have lots of mm -hmm. other public health officials. We see uh, Dr. Eileen Galella um, all over the news all of the time. Uh, Dr. David Williams gets invoked by Rob uh, Doug Ford um, at virtually every conference, right? So these people are becoming increasingly part of our media ecosystem in a way that they never were before. And I, I had I was sort of reading around and I found this newspaper article published in the Canadian press on the 23rd of March by Giuseppe Valiante. And the title was A New Breed of Celebrity in the Age of COVID-19, the Chief Medical Officer. And they have become, in his view, stars in their own right to offer reassuring fact-based approaches on TV all of the time, every day. So the media exposure of both of these classes of professionals is something I think we could put on the table to talk about. 
So how was the media environment, like what was the media environment like around um, around a murder trial of the kind you study? I mean, were these murder trials like almost like um, individual size or small social size epidemics each to their own? What was the media coverage like and like what, you know, how famous did these, was there like a, an Anthony Fauci equivalent um, for the 19th century British empire coming out of murder trials? Uh, so people were bored in the 19th century, you know, they didn't have Netflix, but they definitely did have uh, penny dreadfuls. They had, they had the press. There was a rich press environment across the English speaking world, including mm -hmm. Canada. Um, and trials were terribly interesting. They were open to the public. People would queue for hours to get a chance to sit in the gallery. Uh, there would be tickets distributed to members of the press and lucky members of the public to go and witness executions. Back then executions were still um, regularly practiced. So these were moments for the community to come together and to ask very similar questions to the questions we're asking now. Uh, mm -hmm. What threats face us? Who can save us? What kind of knowledge mm -hmm. we use to figure out the nature of the threat and to calibrate our response? Uh, and there's a mm -hmm. similar, I think, moralizing impulse that was happening mm -hmm. um, in these cases and continues to happen in cases like this in, in court context. Um, and when we talk about pandemics, uh, when we talk about epidemic disease. Mm -hmm. So who was guilty? Who behaved guiltily? Whose fault was it that a particular person or population got sick? Um, why didn't we know about it? How did we discover it? Um, so I think that there are a lot of analogies, certainly, in terms of mm -hmm. how that proceeds in the public zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So some of the, um, you know, some of the um, things you just mentioned are kind of like key elements of the social construction of an epidemic or um, or a pandemic even. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the, um, some of the theoretical um, insights from the history of science, history of medicine that, that you think can help us understand uh, the current crisis? Big questions, Rebecca. Um, so first I would, I'll take the first part first sort of thinking about epidemics. Um, and then we can talk a little bit more about objectivity, which is in sort of on the menu for today. So one of the, the people who, who has the, who we should look to, I think, or can look to, to, to sort of talk and think about this stuff is the scholar Charles Rosenberg, who's a very famous historian of medicine, who's written about um, both mental illness. So he has this wonderful book, The Trial of the Assassin Guiteau is one of my favorites ever. Um, and also has written extensively about cholera outbreaks in the 19th century and generally about the history of medicine. So he has a, a wonderful essay called What is an Epidemic? AIDS in Historical Perspective. It was published um, in a compendium in 1992. And he talks about the ways that epidemic, for him epidemics, but epidemic pandemic, we can use the, the words interchangeably for our purposes. Uh, the way that they're dramaturgic events that they have, mm -hmm. uh, they have a sort of fairly predictable social, political, and emotional response that they provoke in the public. Um, you know, at first you have denial and then growing suspicion and finally confirmation and then crisis. And then slowly, slowly as the epidemic starts to peak and then eventually decrease, you have um, sort of growing relief. And finally you have a moral reckoning wherein mm -hmm. we ask ourselves why it happened and what we did wrong and who was to blame. 
And that's a really important arc that he charts in, in this essay I talked about specifically, he looks at AIDS, but he's also interested in yellow fever and cholera, these great epidemics of the 18th and 19th centuries. And one of the things that he notes, um, and I'll just read the quotation, I know it's unlovely, but it's a, it's a really clever way of putting it. So he says, in the stress of an epidemic, failure to take action constitutes action. An epidemic might in this sense be likened to a trial with policy choices constituting the possible verdicts. So of course I would seize on this, um, but I think that there's something really important about thinking about epidemic as something that has social, emotional and cultural resonance that has not predictable, but um, repeatable sort of logical processes that recur over time and space in ways that can be really quite striking. And also this analogy that I thought was elucidating between the kind of policy environment that we're in now and the trial. So in both environments, you have decision makers who have to render a verdict. They have to choose a policy under circumstances not of their choosing. And they're trying to do this on the basis of information that is fundamentally uncertain scientific information. So that is psychiatric testimony about the mind, which is sort of famously mysterious. Uh, and then knowledge about the epidemic and pandemic, which is also in many cases over time has been mysterious. Um, and certainly is mysterious when it comes to COVID-19. This is a brand new pathogen. This is not cholera. This is not yellow fever. These are not things we know about. These are things we can barely test for. Uh, so there's a there's an active translation that has to happen. And then there's a, a just a, an exigency around decision making that has to occur in this context that is uh, that that really gums up the works that you can't mm -hmm. really just look to science in these cases because you have to make decisions science supposedly is not about making decisions it's about revealing the truth supposedly um, and then you take that truthful information and then you weigh it and then you act right mm -hmm. when you're an expert witness in a trial you're not deciding whether or not someone is guilty you're not rendering the verdict, you are saying whether or not they're insane. So mm -hmm. I think that there is an implicit sort of partnership between science and decision-making in these cases, but decision-makers, even though I think they would like to say that science is driving the bus, um, they're the ones that have the timeline and they're the ones that have to make the decision. And so the history of medicine and the history of science can really help us to think about this question of sort of what is a pandemic what kinds of decisions does it force us to make? And how do we decide who gets to make those? So in, in legal history, we often talk about who decides who decides, right? How does jurisdiction work in these cases? Who do we turn over important decision-making powers to and when? And, and sort of what does that uh, jurisdictional jockeying look like in terms of um, what we are able to perceive as members of the public watching this from the outside and in terms of thinking about the real ethical decisions that have to be made. So that's the, the sort of history of medicine answer a little bit. So there's like translation work that's going on, not just in terms of domains of knowledge, because historians of science will talk about like moving between different scientific subfields, for example, or between the science and the public, but also from what you're saying, like there's a, there's a kind of temporal translation that has to, these, these dip, the um, kind of unique pace of each of these domains, they have to be kind of brought into, um, into sync in a way imperfectly so, right? Because one of, you know, like the, the, and some of the question of 
the kind of who decides hinges on precisely that question of objectivity, right? Who's seen to be the expert, who's seen to be objective. And of course, that's a very problematic, um, it's historically a problematic in, contem in contemporary terms too, a, a kind of problematic baseline. Do you wanna talk about a little bit about what some of the kind of tensions around objectivity are in this case in relationship to your, your own area? Yeah, so, so quite right. I, I mean, I think that there are these two aspects of the expertise in such cases that we really need to pay attention to, right? So the first is the question of expertise at all, right? So, so that's maybe we can say deep knowledge, deep training, um, experience. And then there's objectivity. And objectivity is something that grows out of expertise, at least in theory, right? That the more expert you are in something, the more able you are to, to dispense with the world around you and focus just on the facts. Um, but objectivity is this thing that we should separate, I think, and, and look at um, on its own. So lots of scholars have written, especially as you know, in the history of science and, and associated fields um, about this question of objectivity and how it's not something that we can just presume that it's not, uh, it's not like a, like a rock you just find on the ground, you pick it up and oh, look, it's objectivity, right? Objectivity is something that only exists relationally. Um, and it's something that has a history and it has a particular instantiation based on where you are in time and who you are. Uh, so Lorraine Dastin and Peter Gallison famously in their, in their very large, very brilliant book, Objectivity, um, which was published in 2007, talk about over a very long expanse of time and place, the construction of scientific objectivity as something that they think emerged uh, over the course of the 18th and especially the 19th centuries that this was a new thing. Um, and objectivity came to be understood as um, something that you could detect through somebody's, the methods that they use to know things. So, you know, if you use machines, maybe that means that you're getting better knowledge. If you use large statistical um, data collection, maybe that means you're more objective. Um, the ways that you represent findings, sort of where you publish, all of these little markers came together and served to project the objectivity and therefore the authority of certain groups of scientists as people who could speak uniquely accurately about the world in a way that was difficult or maybe impossible for those of us without that training and without that interdisciplinary within the discipline um, rigor, without peer review, without, um, without vetting. So I connect that sort of from myself to the history of, of criminalistics and um, to work on the rise of detection in the 19th century. And there's some brilliant histories of this as well. And I think that might be a way to clarify it. The idea is that objectivity is something that comes from group action. So it comes from people sharing findings through predictable paths, through collection of, of data and its communication. But it also comes from an internal effort to separate the subjective and the objective. That is the effort of the person trying to be objective to suppress their own emotions to remove themselves from the social world around them, from their own biases, from their own preferences, to, to train themselves to become as much like machines as possible. Uh, and so there, you know, and the idea in the 19th century was that this was very difficult. Um, it was really, really hard to train yourself to keep your passions in check and to just communicate and interact with the world on this sort of unmediated basis. Um, so objectivity is as much about knowledge as, as it is about the knower, right? It's about what you see, but also the seer. 
So objectivity is a project of individuals and groups that has to do with the harnessing of the particular and, the, and, the, and what we might call the human and trying to replace it as much as possible with detachment, with rigor, um, sometimes with machine-like orientations to the world such that you can just interact with stuff without having to engage with people relationally. And so, I mean, I can, it's, I can think of off the top of my head, maybe like a couple of ways in which, you know, this question is really important when we put it next to the observations you were making a moment ago about temporality in the pandemic, right? About the different time scales of different disciplines and different ways of decision-making. So what are some, do you want to sort of elaborate on that a little bit and talk about where like, um, where you see kind of either cracks appearing in this, um, in this, um, I don't want to say facade, but this kind of edifice of objectivity or in how maybe some of the kind of um, extraordinary circumstances of something like a pandemic kind of forced through that, um, the, what, the ideal workings of producing objectivity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to come back to the time problem. Um, and I'm not a scientist, so there are scientists in this lecture series who I think will be able to speak to this much more intimately than I can. But we've all, in reading the news, um, we've all heard that the scientific frontier for things like vaccine development, right, it, it's being compressed in a way that has never successfully been achieved before, right? That we want a vaccine to be developed where we've been told 18 months, but we've also been told by many outlets that you know around four or five years is kind of a best case scenario, or at least has been historically. So that's just one benchmark that seems to have been moved up for reasons that aren't always entirely clear. But also there are just other ways of working that scientists normally do that they can't do right now. So things like the normal peer review process are being accelerated rapidly to try to get as much information out there as quickly as possible. So we have preprints, we have very limited peer review, we have articles that are being circulated globally within the scientific community that haven't had the several months of rigorous peer review that normally they would. Um, which isn't to say that the work isn't high quality or that this shouldn't be done. None of this is to make a value judgment and we can all understand why it's happening. Um, but some of the usual processes are not occurring. The same is true, or we've been told might become true when they start trialing vaccines, that there are people getting very creative about ways of circumventing the usual quite slow testing and verification processes that normal science has sort of set for itself. Um, none of those things necessarily mean that what comes out the other end will be faulty. It just means that we're in a world where our usual systems and our usual timelines no longer seem acceptable, morally mm -hmm. or otherwise. So mm -hmm. we have to, we, and I'm not, I speak in the we, but I'm, I'm not doing this at the coalface, I'm not in the lab, but it seems to me that a lot of the processes of verification um, and rigor to try to ensure objectivity, to ensure that people aren't seeing what they want to see that they're not relying purely on things we could or should dismiss as anecdote, um, that there isn't confirmation bias muddying the waters, right? These are the processes that are having to fall away because we're faced with a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so the question for us should be, how do we think about objectivity and expertise under these circumstances? What does that do to the way that we normally understand science and the scientific method? Mm -hmm. And we know as, as historians that, that what counts as science is a moving, target. 
and things that now are considered pseudoscience and dismissed out of hand used to be good science and in fact are still science they're just not the kind of science that we believe in anymore that we fund anymore so alchemy and um you know reading bumps on people's skulls as phrenological specialists used to do these things are considered now to be pseudosciences because they supposedly didn't produce good data but that's that's a privilege that we have looking backward and i suspect mm -hmm. that you know humans if we make it to 20 you know the year 2500 are going to look back on now with a similar set of queries not just about the knowledge we produce but the methods that we employ to try to find it mm -hmm. the way that we thought we were being objective we thought we were being scientific might not be the way that those people will think about what doing good science looks like mm -hmm. so this is a moment where we're seeing a lot of the training wheels come off and 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 i don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. um, but certainly i think we should all be really cautious when we say that certain knowledges or certain professionals speak for science um, mm -hmm. as if science were this stable unity um, with somehow a, a completely removed podium from which to mm -hmm. address all of us um, mm -hmm. from the social, from the political, from the personal, from the affective. I think that we should be really dubious about that. And, and none of this is to say that science is science is garbage and we should go check on Reddit and figure out what we should put in the drinking water. Um, none of this should be taken as radical relativism or nihilism, um, but it's kind of like what Nathaniel Comfort has recently called the difference between science and scientism, right? Mm -hmm. Scientism being a blind belief that science and only science, and we never define what science really is, but science and only science, however defined, is the only source of truth and rationality and that people who are unscientific are somehow primitive, emotional, irrational. And the people who are scientific are the opposites of all these things and should therefore be believed as a matter of um, sort of religious faith rather than sort of measured and critical understanding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, none of this is to say that science is, is not valuable or that it has no access to truth. It's to say that we should really be careful about reaching for science to save us at this time when it's completely understandable that we would look for heroes mm -hmm. and everybody's a hero now. And um, some people are, are, of course, but you know, we should, we should be really careful. Um, I think about being hagiographic in our approach to what science means at this time, when we can all understand that our human impulse is to, to scrabble as hard as we can for authority, mm -hmm. for truth, for something stable in an unstable world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how the kind of, like under the um under the kind of rosenberg framework of failure to act being action in itself and the kind of moral component of a pandemic um pressure putting pressure on the scientific process such that um what kind of comes out the other end may look fundamentally different or or at least for this like window of time it, things have to um shift in order to accommodate this moment that we're in. It's um, something that Lorraine Dastin, who was one of the co-authors of Objectivity, mentioned in a recent blog post, which I liked a lot, um, and we'll link to it eventually, Marcus tells us, um, is something called ground zero empiricism. Mm -hmm. It's something she associates as an historian of the early modern period with what it was like to try to do science in early modernity in the 16th century, in the 17th century. So what was that like? Um, and it was hard. It was really, really hard. Um, 
people didn't really have a, a strong sense of the, you know, what science was versus any other field of knowledge. And arguably that's still true, um, but we think that mm -hmm. it isn't true anymore. Um, but she talks about the way that physicians and other scientists now are having to employ some of the tools, as I was mentioning, that, that they as a field in many ways have, have tried to move away from. So things like um, just communi you know, communicating over text message about you know, patient prognoses and, and things that they're seeing in their own practice, experiments that they're undertaking um, without a whole lot of systematicity, you know, trying to hope that, that these things will be replicable, uh, replicable across cases, but without really knowing, um, you know, that people are just going by instinct, they're, they're, you know, you know, they're working based on what they experience, they're sort of trying to, to filter that information in an environment that is so incredibly uncertain and so fast moving. Um, so in a way, Dustin argues, you know, that she's very comfortable looking at this scientific world because it reminds her of what it was like in the early modern period before the rules uh, of science existed in the way that we currently tend to understand them. And so people were not just trying to figure out how to know stuff, but how to know stuff like scientists. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I wonder too, if we should be a little bit where, I mean like, well, how do you think we should think about this um, particular time? Like, it, do, you, do you think it's helpful to think of it as a return to a, a, a different era? Or do you think there's another way of kind of, um, understanding the exceptional circumstances we're in that might make a, that might help us kind of make sense of the, you know, the role that scientific uh, practice, method, expertise, objectivity is playing in, in the pandemic. Because we're, because, because no, like, I think that, um, you know, both the kind of people on the, on the research frontier of the scientists on the research frontier of COVID-19 and those treating patients, like nobody would think we've really kind of like thrown out everything we've known. We're just like, we've gone back to like, you know, um, like plague masks, the beak and bloodletting. And it, but, the, but there is something, except there is something kind of like extraordinary, exceptional about this time. So I'm just wondering like as historians, can we, in the way that we, you know, one of the things historians do is think about, um, change over time, right? And what characterizes a particular moment? Do you have any like kind of instincts about how we might characterize something like this? So the past is a different country as people like to say, but the past is also the present in a lot of ways. So, you know, mm -hmm. are plague masks that different from our homemade scraps of fabric? I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Um, the science is out on that, or at mm -hmm. least it's largely out. Um, and leeches are actually great at preserving limbs that have been grafted on. I mean, they're, they're great at, yeah. um, you know, removing clots. And so, you know, so all of these things that we tend to, to tar as uncivilized, as early modern, as primitive, as unenlightened, a lot of these techniques were sort of the baby in the bathwater. You know, these were, mm -hmm. these were good techniques. They were deeply known. Um, they weren't random. They came from profound study in the wisdom of centuries. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they might not, our early modern forebears might not have had the germ theory of disease, but they knew a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, you know, I, so I don't think that it is 
super helpful though to, to just collapse the past into in the present and to just say well now you know let, let's just only read books written in the 16th century and 17th century because they are the only ones that can tell us what to do in our current moment right um we are not in the 16th century we're in the 21st god help us all um and i think like all times you know we are the product of our past but we are not de determined by it in any kind of strong linear way that's why historians are allergic to prediction right mm -hmm. um, everybody always wants to know what did we do in the past and how can we use that to inform our our future and it, most historians are you know really reluctant to say anything about that because we fundamentally i think are aware that everything structure agency all the rest of it but, but the world is contingent and it, it's never exactly the same and so the world now is not the world then but that said, you know, I, what I think history does bring to the table and why it's useful is that it, it helps us to ask new questions. Mm -hmm. It helps us to think in different ways. It helps us to get out of, uh, I think, the trap of thinking about our current moment as the best moment there's ever been um, with the most knowledge there's ever been. And mm -hmm. you know, to assume that our structures and our ways of proceeding, especially when we talk about things like science that we tend to think of as out of history, as just sort of Transhistorical truths. I think that by inserting ourselves back into history and asking historical questions of the present and perhaps of the future, I think that that helps us have a better sense of the landscape. I don't think it gives us answers, but it gives us really good questions. And I think that that's what I would like to see us doing more when we talk about this resort to expertise. When Doug Ford again stood up today and talked about health and science, that he would be guided by health and science. And of course, health is the goal, but science is the tool. And so, you know, when he says that, what is science and what kind of authority are we giving to it and why? Um, and again, none of this, I, I don't want to be taken as debunking science or somehow in any way sort of undermining the tremendously difficult and necessary work that scientists and medical doctors and everyone is doing right now to try to save us all. Um, but it's to say that I think, you know, if you press a politician on a point, of, of importance and they just say, well, science, I think you should say, well, what science, who's science, when science, mm -hmm. um, and what kind of information can that give us and what kind of information can it fundamentally not give us? Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't mm -hmm. allow objectivity to dull our critical faculties. And I don't think that we should allow, all of my caveats aside, I don't think we should allow the threat of being tarred as somehow anti-science and therefore primitive or cruel or irrational um, to keep us from asking these questions. I think there's a way to ask them in a way that's respectful and humane and enriching rather than you know taking sides in in the culture war that we've been enmeshed mm -hmm. in for the last few years. Mm -hmm. All right, Rebecca. Great. Do you have final thoughts or questions? I think I'm so happy to end on a note of um, you know greater understanding of history guiding us towards better questions that can then um, contribute to our state of knowledge. I certainly hope so, or else we're both out of a job. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Rebecca.